This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Thursday Lit Lit Show. I'm your host, Paul Hazard, and on tonight's show, the second of two linked shows on teacher identity, I'm talking to Jordan Reuters. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. It's always lovely to have a range of accents on the show, and as you'll hear in a minute, hopefully... My guest tonight, Jordan, is Australian, but he joins us from Budapest. Now, Jordan is an occupational psychologist, and his work focuses largely on identity, leadership, performance, and well-being. And he spent the last 10 years or so as a consultant, just helping clients to solve a range of problems using psychometric assessment, behavior change initiatives, and uh, developing skill building programs. Jordan's PhD research at the University of Queensland, he uncovered new ways to build shared identity so leaders and teams can you know, build and work better together. Jordan's also very active on Twitter and I'm sure many of you will follow him and know his very, very sharp and insightful tweets. Jordan, you're very welcome to the program, all the way from Budapest. How are you? I'm very well, Paul. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on the show, and I look forward to a great chat. That's great. Yeah, super duper. Yeah. Jordan, you're coming across well, nice and loud and clear. All good. Yeah. So what has you in Budapest, Jordan? You're Australian. Yeah, it's a great question. I spent the last few years doing research at the University of Queensland as part of a PhD program. And that was a pretty tough time because a lot of that was during COVID. So I spent, you know, a couple of years on my own in a room working on on all of these research findings. And the first thing I did when I submitted is I bought a one-way ticket and I've just spent a little bit of time now resetting, refreshing, and working my way up to some conferences in Eastern Europe that I'm going to be presenting some work at. So it is a bit of a dual purpose. Oh, that's good. That all sounds great. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Super duper. So Jordan, you've done a lot of work on teacher identity and um, it's just an area that's fascinated me always. You know, what is it to be a teacher? What are we like? Um, And kind of what's the profession like and the persona? Because, you know, when you are a teacher for a while, you do develop certain ways of being and certain habits and, and, and so on. I just thought your research was very interesting. So this idea of identity is something that maybe people don't think all that much about. It can be a little bit like being a fish in water and you don't realize you're swimming in it until such time as maybe you get taken out of water or someone points it out to you. And yeah, identity really shapes, it shapes who we are because you know it is an understanding of who we are. And that understanding then informs what we do, the things we say, the, the goals and the priorities that we hold front of mind. 
um, yeah, it's, it kind of structures our day-to-day -day life in a way that, that just, you know, it's, it's a bit of a framework for living and, and uh, you know, when you have these identities at a group level, which is what a teacher identity is, it's an understanding not just who, of who I am as an individual person, but it's an understanding of who we are as a group. And so that understanding is, is to some extent, it's a negotiated, you know, uh, thing that you need to constantly engage with other people in order to understand. So it's not just your own personal understanding. You've got to talk to other people and, and potentially even contest it. You know, you've got to um, put forward your perspective and maybe even argue it or, or fight for something different. And then I wonder, yeah, you've kind of said there because, you know, certainly for us, teacher identity is rarely something that's ever kind of overtly spoken about. You know, we, we don't really talk about our identity as teachers. We might talk about the things we do. We might have in-service. We might have a shared vision of what we want to do, but we rarely talk about individuals and groups and the identity we have. Is that changing or is that something we could be doing? I'd like to think that those things uh, can, can be incorporated into a discussion about identity. So when you talk about behaviors that people engage in, so what is, what is normal behavior or what is expected behavior of, of a teacher, that's, that could be part of your identity because any of these things that you understand as being you know, part of who you are and what is defining or self-defining, that is your identity. So it could be those patterns of behavior. As you said, it could be goals or, or these kind of long-term visions uh, or, 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 or shared values. There are lots of, uh, I guess, what we call like identity content or the building blocks that you would use to piece together your identity can include any or all of these things or none of these things. And so it's really like, uh, it's quite interesting that maybe people don't use the terminology identity, but actually the way they experience it in their day-to-day -day life, it's really relevant to these, uh, to these things. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, that's quite possible actually, yeah. So what, what would some of the building blocks be uh, in terms of identity? This is a question I asked in the first bit of research that I did in my PhD. And looking at this idea of identity content, so basically what, what is the content that, that people use to describe and define their identity, their sense of who they are? And it's a little bit like, I don't know, trying to, to draw, you know, um, some sort of shape around a cloud of smoke. You know, it's this nebulous, ephemeral sort of thing. Identity can move in all sorts of shapes and sizes. So how do you draw neat boundaries around it to say this is a type of content? Um, so there, there was a bit of a process involved, but to cut a long story short, there are five really broad types of identity content. And then within each of those, we can kind of split it into more finer grained dimensions. So I can walk you through those broad domains just to give people a rough sense of kind of, you know, what, what we're talking about when we talk about identity content. Absolutely. Let's so do the, that. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the first one we called sentiment. So an understanding of who you are based on what it feels like to be you. So there are certain emotions or evaluations that are, you know, common or, or um, you know, something you, you frequently experience as part of your identity. And so if you're part of a team or an organization or let's say a school or a department, what does it feel like to be in that school? Is it tense? Is it friendly? Is it... Uh, toxic? Is it supportive? So these different kind of, uh, you know, um, emotional aspects of it. 
And in terms of the evaluations, are you proud? Do you feel like you're successful? Are things going well? Or do you feel like you know, things aren't the way they used to be? So these kind of judgments that you're making um, and the way you speak about your, your school or your, your department um, are, are the first kind of category. Yeah, very The second one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did, you, did you have any kind of reflections there? Does that bring to mind anything? that you'd like to expand on? Well, I, I think that's maybe what I would call, you know, maybe in more layman's terms, the affective dimension of being a teacher. Um, and I suppose a lot of that happens in, you know, hushed corners of the staff room, maybe where people go in and they talk about, um, you know, what it's like in this school, who has been annoying them or so on or as you say exactly you know what's good about this school what are we proud of what of our achievements yeah so i think i would refer to that more as and again it's informal it's the affective dimension of our work as teachers yeah yeah that's a great way of thinking about it and so maybe i should just quickly draw a distinction between like your identity isn't every emotion that you feel and every you know, judgment you make, the, they are the things that come to be self-defining, that, that you, you internalize as part of, you know, who you are. So to, just yeah. to kind of clarify that it's not anything and everything, it's, it's those things that hang around long enough to go, well, yeah, actually, that's, that's something that I'm experiencing day in, day out. That's kind of normal. That's what ex is expected here. That's kind of just part and parcel of being in this, this school or department or what have you. Um, so I'll, what I'll do is maybe just yeah. proceed. So oh, that be, like, I used to talk a lot about, you know, the climate or the culture of a place. Um, and it's that kind of, um, I, I loved your metaphor, by the way, the, the, you know, the shape around a cloud of smoke. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> yes, yeah. well, exactly right. Um, but I used to talk a little bit about, you know, climate and culture being in the air. It's more felt than talked about. So that's that's a really great kind of yeah. topic of discussion and, and maybe a, a can of worms, but this distinction between what is culture and what is identity and, and in terms of like the organizational science, I think some of those questions are still open for debate, but I would just say, again, culture is kind of all of the things as you experience and experiencing them. Yes. And then identity is the stuff that you internalize and, and it becomes self-defining. It becomes this framework of how you understand yourself mm -hmm. and, and act great. in the world. Yeah. Okay, so that's sentiment, yeah. Yes, so there's, there's a couple of others, and I'll try and whip through these uh, a, a little bit quicker so we can get into some meatier discussion if you would like, but the, the next one uh, we called attributes, which is maybe something that people are a little bit more kind of familiar with, but this, this is like plain descriptive terms that you use, like is your school, um, you know, or, sorry, like do you, do you see yourselves as hardworking or are you the jokers, are you funny, uh, what, whatever these kind of qualities or adjectives that you use to kind of describe yourself and self-define. And they can be both objective and subjective. So objective is in like they're just factual statements. Everyone here is, you know, of a particular um, age range, let's say. We're all kind of, or, or, or maybe there's really diverse ages. So something we're just kind of observing in people. Um, and then there's subjective ones which are a little bit more you know, again, open to interpretation. We're funny. Well, we think we're funny at least. And that's, that's something that we think characterizes us, even though maybe other people don't have to agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, right. So attributes is how you see yourself. And then I suppose one of the things that that kind of made me think of Jordan was in a school, you can very definitely have factions. You might have a unified vision and, you know, a direction in which you want to go or the management want to go. 
but sort of sitting in under that, you could have little pockets of unrest or pockets of support and so on. Is that really what that means? I mean, it could well be that's so that, that observation you're making about almost any organization or any group is, is true. Like there's, there's not just one identity or one, one group. It's often split into these subgroups and, and factions, as you call them. And each of those would have their own sense of, of what defines them, what makes them unique. And some of those attributes would, you know, they would use to kind of describe themselves. It's like where the, you know, um, we are the reliable ones, you know, like this, this or, you know, those, and, and potentially even attributes you would use to describe the other groups as well. So it's like a comparison. So it's like, this is how we are, and this is how they are, and they, they are, you know, the, the uptight ones, whatever you, whatever the... I've got the, you, yeah. You know, so it's, it's a way of kind of understanding yourself, yeah, potentially in that, in that circumstance where there are multiple groups at play. Um, so yes, you, you can kind of just be thinking about yourselves internally, or it could be via social comparison. That's another thing that kind of comes into play a lot when we're talking about group identity. You're often defined not just what you are, but what you yeah, aren't. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yes. Okay, so that's sentiment attributes, yeah? Yeah, the next one is patterns or patterns of behavior, if you want to say it out in full. And that's really what it, what it says it is. So what are the things that are normal in your group, at your school, in your department, as, as a set of um, you know, teachers more, more generally? What are the things you tend to do day in, day out? And that can be really core to, to your, um, you know, your role as a teacher, but it could just more, be more um, innocuous things like, well, we go and get coffee at this time or every Friday we go for drinks or, you know, we liked, like, wh when I was asking teams about these things, I'd get all sorts of things that were normal for them. So some groups would regularly go out and do social things together, like axe throwing and just, yeah, all, all of these right. kind of funny events, right? And they saw that as defining of their group because they're not just an ordinary team that turns up and does work. Well, no, they go out and do these other things and that's, that's something that they think is really special. Um, but, but within the norms, it's, it's not just what, what is normal in terms of like what you do all the time, but it's a little bit as well what you, what you ought to do. So there's some standard or expectation or set of rules, let's say, um, that are that are implicit in that. So it's normal and expected behavior. So here is how we do things, and here is how anyone in this group should behave if there's a newcomer, or you know, if you're trying to tell whether or not someone is or isn't in your group, then maybe those rules, and if they're not following them, are the things you look out for. So yeah, just just could be you know certain behavior uh, like co conduct uh, in terms of their behavior at work, um, the language that they use, uh, the way they dress. There could be all sorts of little things that kind of distinguish someone that's in the group from not, and, and you just know that because they've kind of crossed a line or, you know, they've made a faux pas. These are all the things that we kind of just realize, oh, yeah, that person doesn't belong here. They don't fit in here. And, and it's usually because they violated one of those norms. Great. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So that's patterns of behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Then we've got uh, function, which is, you know, what, what are you trying to do as a group? What are your goals? What's your purpose? What's your vision? Um, what are the methods and means through which you kind of achieve that? And how are you going towards those goals? Like, how are you progressing? Are things moving along or are you stuck? Are you facing kind of challenges? Um, are, you, are you winning? Do you have trophies and medals or, you know, awards, I guess, if you're, if you're teachers? Um, yeah. Those are the sorts of things that let you know that you are moving in the right direction. Um, and, yeah. and I might just do the fifth one because it's, it's often very relevant. But the fifth one is just kind of 
how your context defines you. And that could be your physical context. So often if you're at a school, you are in a physical location and that is part of what defines you. I, I just spent you know, all of these years studying at the University of Queensland and we have these beautiful sandstone buildings and purple jacaranda trees. There's something very special about the, the physical location and the space that we, we operate in and that, that comes to define us. Um, then there's also just kind of the, the, the social context. So as a, as a set of teachers, you're embedded in a social system, right? You're, you're maybe um, you know, a department or, or a, a, a subject within a school and that school is within a district and the district is within, you know, like within a country or I, I don't know exactly what the levels are, but you're kind of nested in this social structure. So you have a sense of where you're, where you're placed in, in this bigger system. And that kind of, again, can, can help you understand who you are. And also then there's the social environment, which is like, well, your teachers, and, and almost by definition, you're working with and for other groups of people. You're helping students and you're interacting with parents, you know, for better or worse. Uh, you know, there's, there's these other, other people that kind of, um, you know, through your interactions with them, define who you are and what you do. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, excellent, yeah. Um, go ahead, Jordan. Yeah. So those are the five categories of, of identity content. And um, yeah, I guess maybe one final point I'll add is that's, that's a bit of a menu, you know, like a laundry list of all the things yeah. that could define your group, but no one group had all of those things. So I'm not saying that this is, you must have ticked all of these as, as a set of boxes to, to have your identity. It could be any of those things. Um, and it's, it's kind of, there's quite a bit of room to move, let's say, in, in how you define your group, mm -hmm. how you define yourself. Yeah, so there's a certain fluidity. Uh, and one, of course, could be part of different groups. Isn't that, of course, true? Yeah, this is a really great point because, uh, you know, as a teacher, even just being a teacher has, has many dimensions to it, right? Because you could think of yourself at this really high level, of, you know, as a teacher, as a profession, but then kind of teacher of a particular subject or, you know, there's different ways of kind of dividing that, just that, that single identity as a, as a teacher. But then also each individual person has many other groups and many other aspects to their identity that inform what they do. So, you know, your, um, you know, your gender, your, um, ethnicity, your religion, all of these things are potential group identities that you're drawing from that shape who you are and what you do. And you, you to some extent, bring those to bear in your teaching, um, you know, in, in obvious ways and maybe in subtle ways. But yeah, you, each of us is kind of a, um, a multiplicity, you know, where <laughs> we are m many things. Yeah, yeah. And, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, that's, a, that's also a good point as well. Uh, I, th I think actually just a, a broader point with group identity is it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? There's, there's this really fantastic line of research called the social cure. And it talks about how, you know, social connectedness, group membership, being, uh, you know, uh, in a community or having a sense of belonging, all of these things are really important for our mental and physical health. Um, and so on one hand, you know, social groups and, and these social identities are really important for us. And maybe everyone would have had a first-hand experience of that during COVID when they were potentially a little bit isolated or removed from some of those things. But then there's also these downsides to groups, which is just that, yeah, like on one hand, if you're part of the wrong group, like you can have groups that aren't good for your health just because the norms of those groups are, you know, dysfunctional and toxic and destructive. 
Um, or you can be so invested in a group that actually you become uh, a bit of a zealot. You know, you, you, you're so committed to it that you kind of can't see beyond it. And, and that's maybe what sometimes people call tribalism. So that's, that's maybe another downside to kind of group identity. Um, but the, the kind of the point you were raising as well was just like the fact that we have all of these different identities can, can just seem really complex. And I guess if people are listening to this, they go, oh yeah, like maybe I can think of 10 different groups that I'm a part of, like how do I make sense of that? And, and all I'll say is actually, I think your, your brain does a lot of that work for you because the identities that become um, active in your mind kind of sh should make sense in the situation you're in. So maybe you, you have a, you know, a, an ethic, ethnic identity, but if that doesn't have any bearing on what you're doing in the moment, then it's not going to come to front of mind and, and it's not going to influence your behavior as much. So the things that are going on and the circumstances around you will, will kind of bring out of you the things that, that need to in order to, to navigate the demands of the situation. Does that make sense? That makes great sense. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's very clear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when, when you were asking that question, I, I just wanted um, to, to quickly but, dr drill in there when you're asking about the multiple identities. Uh, is that something that you've seen people kind of struggling with, um, you know, as, as teachers kind of um, juggling different identities, let's say? Um, I think I would. Yes. Yes, I definitely would say. Yeah. Um, it's maybe not as a result of, you know, one identity, you know, that I am a mathematics teacher therefore the maths that we do in this school happens that way but it might be because of a number of identities they have that cause them to struggle or, or, or maybe not fit in so much generally if there's a problem with one identity or one group that could be overcome I think um, but it's generally when there's a multiplicity of issues um, it can see yeah. difficulty yeah. yeah I see what it means mm. yeah there's something uh, called identity compatibility that's often studied now so obviously all of all of us are part of different groups but those groups aren't necessarily compatible with each other so yeah you know like if, if you were to let's say bring your friends home to to your family like maybe maybe those groups would be compatible your friendship group and your family group they might get along really well but they also you might just have a group of friends that that doesn't get well and maybe you wouldn't bring your your teaching colleagues to you know to, to your sporting team or whatever, like just some of those groups don't make any sense out in the world. And I think that's even true within a, a, a single organization. Not, not all groups get along. And if you're a member of multiple groups, sometimes it can be really tricky. That's, that's essentially what politics is. When you're in an organization and there's politics, it's basically there are multiple group boundaries and you know, you're trying to navigate them and, and cross over them and walk from one to the other and try not to disturb too much um, as you do that. And yeah, I, I naturally think that is a, a big challenge for people. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote that down earlier that, you know, about conflict and conflict and identities and, and, and what that does to us, what happens to us then when we kind of meet that conflict. You know, let's say our, you know, our background, our, our social background, and our upbringing isn't kind of the identity of, of a teacher in the school that we're in. Is that something then that's hard to manage? Would that give rise to, you know, inner turmoil, stress? Or Yeah, it certainly can. I think, so, so maybe one thing I'll just explain very briefly is that 
identities are, as I said before, this, this thing that we can describe and define through our words, and it's an understanding of who we are. But that comes from kind of two main sources. One is just like these things that are already part of us. So our, our history, our, our life experiences, we're drawing upon, you know, whatever you've gone through in the, the um, you know, the earliest stages of your life. And you carry all of that with you. And, you'd, and in many cases, you don't have a choice in the matter. So if you lived in a particular area, went to a school or, you know, had, had certain kind of, um, you know, challenges in your life, setbacks, what have you. Um, yeah, you, you, you don't necessarily get to choose those things you, and you bring them with you. And, and then the other part of the identity is maybe stuff that's a little bit more, you know, you get to construct it, you get to create it and you, you talk about it and it's a little bit more up for debate, let's say. Um, and so th there's almost these, yeah, two forces within each of us. One is just like the, the innate things or the, the, the things that we don't really get to shed. And then there's a bunch of stuff which is like the creative part of identity, which is we get to shape and, and actively um, contribute to and, and move in a new direction. But yeah, if you can come into a group and actually like that, that sense of alignment is, is really important. So if you feel really aligned and, and you know, the things just kind of make sense, oh, I, I had the same goals or I share these interests or we've got the same values, it's really easy to come into a group and feel like you belong and get, get along with the other members, right? You see eye to eye on most things. But if you come from a different walk of life or yeah, you've got a different background, whatever it is, it can be a really big challenge. And, and yeah, I think um, navigating that is, is um, you know, really, really uh, complicated, right? Because on one hand, like a, if you're a teacher, like you're there by profession, like you've gone and you've been educated and you're doing these things. Um, so to some extent, it's like, that's, that's just what you do now. <laughs> and, and you've got to reconcile that with all these other things that, that you were or that you, you have been or that you still are to some extent in the rest of your life. So yeah, I can imagine this is a, a, a tricky thing. So um, is, is there something more specific there that you'd like to dig into that to, like... Um... Well, I... Maybe, maybe just before we get to that, Jordan, did I, maybe I missed this, maybe I missed this, but what is the purpose of identity? What purpose does it serve is maybe what I should ask. Why do we have an mm -hmm. identity? Why is it something that exists? That's a million dollar question. And, and it's a pretty deep one. I don't, I don't want to lose too many people in my explanation of this. So I'll, tr sure. I'll try and keep it uh, short and sweet, but um one of the things that we do to understand the world is we, we categorize it into, you know, different things that are, that we see. And, and like just a simple, you know, category is just like objects and animals and things like that. So th there's a, there's a world out there that's kind of, um, you know, made of, of, of atoms and energy. And we're actually perceiving objects and, and, you know, um, bits and pieces of the world based on our understanding of what, what the, the kind of um, attributes of those things are. Um, and so, so we're kind of uh, a, a, a creating this framework of meaning to understand and navigate through the world. And we're, we're doing that all the time. And identity is just one of those meaning frameworks that, that we are included in. It's a category that we are included in to help us kind of make sense of and, and uh, find our way through the world. Does, does that make sense? I realize it's super abstract and I can, I can provide some more like concrete examples of, of like what that means and what that looks like. But... No, uh, yeah, no, 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 it does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely it does. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So we want to categorize things and then we want to be able to align ourselves with them or against them in some way. Well, yeah, we, we are like a group is just a category. It's I'm saying this 
bunch of people over here, they seem to be similar in some way. So I'm going to group them together and, and I will perceive them and understand them to be part of a group. And if I'm part of that group, that's, that then becomes part of my identity. The, the characteristics that define that category, I internalize and use as a framework to guide my behavior and to structure my thinking and to inform what's the right thing to kind of say and where and do. Like, you know, it becomes this kind of basis upon which to act in the world. Um, and so like, you know, as a kid, you learn a whole bunch of categories and, uh, you know, really basic ones, like you probably start off when you, when your parents are teaching you to read or, or you know, you know, early, early teachers are teaching you to read of, of an animal and then, okay, well, what is an animal? Or, well, it's not, it's not this and it's not that and it has these properties and then, then you make more fine-grained categories. Okay, well, that's a dog and that's a cat. And you know when you're working with little kids, they actually really struggle to do that, right? They'll, they'll misattribute something. They'll, like, they'll see everything with four legs and a tail as a dog, let's say. And, and their category isn't very fine-grained. But as they learn more and more, they can go, well, now actually that's a poodle and that's a golden retriever. And they, you can start to, to distinguish you know, these fine-grained things. And then we, as humans, we can even do that to the extent of like, it's not even the physical features that we're categorizing anymore. It's the content of your mind. So you have a goal that I, have, that I also have in common and therefore we are the same in some way. We, we both sit within the same category and that, that allows me to kind of interact with you in a different way than I would have before. So yeah, hopefully that's making sense. No, 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 it very definitely is, yeah. And then I, I, I'm wondering, is there something, you know, of survival, almost Darwinian about identity? You see, just as you were talking, I remember going into a staff room. I was a brand new teacher, very young, in a staff room. And I do remember there was a, a large briefing. There might have been 120 people in the room. And I remember the principal introducing me. Now, immediately that puts a spotlight on you because the 119 other people all know each other. You are the new kid on the block. And I remember kind of looking around for, you know, are there any friendly faces here? Is there anybody that looks like me? When this pressure ends, who am I going to get up and move towards? Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a great example. And I'm sure we've all had different scenarios where we've become really aware of you know, some pre-existing groups that are like, you could be at a party or yeah, you could be at a conference and there's, there's these kind of pre-existing groups and you're, you're not in any of them. And so you any. have to very quickly <laughs> figure out what's going on. What is the nature of these groups? Are exactly. they friendly? Are they hostile? And, you know, do I belong to any of them? So what are, you know, like that's the kind of identity content or, you know, are there things about them that I can identify and that I have in common that I can share and go, yep, I'm actually, you know, I'm one of you and, and you know, I, I'm therefore kind of friendly and I'll, I'll work with and for this group, right? So yeah, in a way it's kind of humans are very social creatures and the way in which we navigate our social environment is through these kind of, um, yeah, we're, we're forming these little groups and, and as I said before, that's a, that's a category, it's part of our perception and if you align with a group, that's safe, right? Your safety in numbers. So there's definitely kind of a, an evolved tendency there. Yeah, um, that's that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's that's a long way. Yeah, there is. There's that sense of safety. And here I am in this new school. I'm going to be okay if I can identify with people who are like me. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. And so that's it's this really primal um, part of our psychology. But um, as you can imagine, as I said before, this can be used for you know for better or worse, um, because sometimes people. Um, you know, when they're members of groups, 
can exclude people from those groups, right? Or, you know, the nature of the group can be hostile towards other groups. And that's, that's potentially something that characterized much of human history was like we joined groups because if you were on your own, you, you wouldn't have lasted. And, it's, and even if you are in a group, then you've got to fight the other groups that are maybe competing for scarce resources or they want to, you know, take your land or whatever these, these things were that we, that we once had to compete for. And maybe now, like those, those mechanisms that we evolved are still there. They haven't gone away, but just the nature of the landscape has changed. We're not competing for, you know, scarce food resources. Maybe there's, um, you know, funding is the scarce resource in, in schools. And, you know, people are, are competing for that and, and maybe not in hostile ways where they get a sword and a shield and run at each other, but they're doing it in, in other ways that kind of, uh, you know, can still be aggressive or, or covert. Um, maybe there's lots of different ways in which groups try to further their own interests. And sometimes that's at the expense of other groups. So, yeah, I, I don't know how relevant this is for, for teachers if there's like much of a warring tribes kind of situation for them. Um, but uh, yeah, one, one final thing I'll just say there is like the other reason that, um, that this is maybe interesting to people is when they walk into that room, there's a very visceral emotional reaction or, or, or kind of physiological reaction you get when you're in that new setting, right? When you walk in and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't know these people. Your blood pressure increases, your heart rate probably rises a little bit. You, you know, you start to sweat and, and, you, and actually you're, you're, you become hyper-focused on the situation. You're not thinking about what you had for breakfast. You know, it actually, it, it starts to mobilize all of these kind of um, inner, inner resources and, and inner energy to, to, you know, navigate that situation. Because yeah, maybe once upon a time that was life and death. And yeah, you really feel it. So yeah, that's, that's very interesting. You see, I have a very visual, very strong visual uh, picture of that day walking into that school and a very visceral, you know, quite a physical response, even just talking to you about it right now. So it must have had a huge impact on me at the time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's a challenge everyone faces, right? At some point in time, you're a new teacher coming into a school. And so you've got to cross that line then. And then potentially you'll move from school to school and at each of those junctures you're you know leaving your group your identity your, your sh social identity that you share with other people and you're entering into a new one and you to some extent starting from scratch you've got to figure out again all ask all of those questions what is the nature of this group is it friendly how am i going to fit in like yeah that's that's a um, and it happens it's it's a big challenge yeah. and it's a common and challenge it happens of course to our pupils as well you know, they, they move from, you know, family to nursery school, nursery to primary, primary to post-primary, and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, another good point. And then even within each of those year levels, they would have their own little cliques and, and you know, groups and stuff like that. So I guess this discussion of identity is also relevant to pupils as well. Like, they're, they're forming their little social shared identities um, in, this, in the schoolyard and in the classroom and things like that. And I wonder, Jordan... Do, do children cope better with it? Maybe, you know, forming or spotting or, or, you know, identifying, you know, do they manage it better than we do as adults? It's a good question. I would say maybe uh, as, as a child, it's a little bit harder for identities to be abstract. And what I mean by that is like, you know, you, you can really tell this in a young kid, they don't care about politics because politics is, is very abstract. It's about these kind of ideas that are far beyond their understanding, right? 
And so the way in which they're viewing the world is through their current understanding. And so if your identity is who you understand yourself to be, it kind of has to be in accord with your knowledge, your, your current knowledge of the world. So you can't identify with a political party if you don't understand what politics is or you don't care about it. Um, and so their, their groups are a little bit more um, tangible in the, the kind of you know, moment to moment sense. They're looking at people their age, same gender, you know, does this person have the same shoes as me? Like there could, could be these really superficial basic things that they're using to help kind of categorize them. Oh, um, definitely. And that's really interesting. Like that's, that can lead kids in, in all sorts of directions, right? Because they're, they're making these basic decisions just based on what they perceive. And that may or may not have anything to do with who that person is, right? And that's, that's often the challenge of, of being a kid in a schoolyard is you're getting judged for things that really speak nothing to who you are as a person. Um, so that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of an unfortunate reality of, of schoolyard life. No, it's just an interesting thought that occurred to me because um, while I was telling you that, I, I don't know, what would I have been then? You know, 20-something anyhow. Um, but at age 11, I went off to boarding school. Now, somehow that was less traumatic for me. You know, I don't have the same memories. I don't have the same at least not the same recollection of being as stressed or worried or going to boarding school and looking to find people. Undoubtedly, I did it. But there's something about walking into that staff room mm. that day with all those other teachers as the new boy on the block. There's something about that and you know, wanting to find people that I could identify with very quickly. There's something much more, oh gosh, I don't know, very real about that. Maybe I had more to lose, you see. I'm kind of yeah, thinking, that's, that's and I'm thinking as I go along here, you know, you're a new teacher, you've got your degree, you've got this job, you feel you've earned it. Here you are, it's day one, you now have to prove yourself. Maybe there's a sense of having more to lose. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, that's a really great insight. Yeah, I, I was going to say, potentially, as as we learn more about the world, we don't uh, it's it's not all sunshine and roses. We often learn what could go wrong, the potential consequences, and you know we we realize more about um, you know how the world is in in all of its uh, good and bad. And when you're in that situation, all of those all those variables are running through your head. But at age eleven, you probably have a very or much more naive understanding of the world, and so you're not you're not aware of all the stuff that could go wrong. So that's yeah, I think that's a valid. Um, a valid read on that. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yes, yeah, age eleven, you're just you're just more naive or something, and you, you just embrace what comes at you. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, interestingly, you said that. Um, so we all have our history and and you know our backgrounds and our upbringing and our rearing and so on and so forth. And we bring that to every situation that we're in, uh, and that would be very. That would be very powerful, of course, and very influential in who we are now. But that some of our identity comes from, you know, trying out new things for ourselves and, and, and so on. And, you know, maybe acquiring a new identity. W would there be conflict between those two things? You know, between our, our, our path? And I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe here, I, I'm sure you do know the work of... Uh, you know, uh, Bourdieu and, you know, his whole theory of reproduction that basically, you know, we are what we are and we just reproduce it as we go along. Mm. Yeah. So in the identity 
research that I've come across, there is this distinction between actual and potential. So who you are currently and who you could be in some, you know, imagined sense. It could be in the ideal or there's just kind of different possibilities, right? Um, and and there's, there's definitely tension between those two things as well. So um, part of who you are is who you could be. Like if that's um, a really interesting thought, right? Like sometimes people identify more with those things that they aren't currently. They identify more with their goals and aspirations. And so actually like their current self is, is at odds with that. So yeah, there's, there's definitely these opportunities for conflict between these different parts of the self. Um, does that answer your question? Is, am I on the money there? Gosh, it's really, <laughs> it's really, I'm really absorbed. I'm really listening to you. Yeah. And, and I think it does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yes. That's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I was a manager or a senior manager in a school for, for quite a long time. And we'd often use that, that potential, you know, what, what could a person, what could a teacher walk into? What kind of teacher could they be if they just assumed this identity, even for a short while? Mm-hmm. Um, I used to use that a lot, you know, to just try and, you know, motivate teachers or get them to have that sense of ambition for themselves, really. Yeah. Was that done formally through uh, like a coaching or a one-on-one or, or, or group kind of sessions? Like how, how did you actually achieve that? Well, that is a very good question, yes. And we did have, uh, with union action and so on now, that, that's, uh, it's not really a thing at the moment. Um, but we would have uh, PRSD, we called it here in Northern Ireland, Performance Review and Staff Development. So a teacher would meet with a senior manager, they would discuss where they're at, where they would like to be, and then they would kind of, you know, uh, plan out steps to how the teacher could grow and develop and what staff development was needed. I always found that that was quite formal uh, and quite rigid and so on. And I had a lot more success if I went and I spoke to somebody more in the role of, you know, kind of mentor or, or something like that. Definitely had a much, you know, greater impact on the person. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, you, you're entirely right. A lot of organizations now have all of these formal procedures and it can seem a little bit lifeless as well as rigid, you know, like you're going through the motions with someone trying to think about these things and you kind of, it's a little bit of a box ticking exercise, but when you get the sense that someone genuinely cares and they're having these discussions with you kind of beyond that, then I think actually you buy into it a little bit more and, and uh, yeah, maybe you're willing to be a little bit more vulnerable and open up and actually, yeah, genuinely explore these things, this, this future potential you. Yeah, it does, it does. It makes a real difference, I think, when someone takes that, personal interest and a little bit of time and kind of maybe even sometimes has kind of thought of a vision for you you know and it's not necessarily that you haven't thought of it yourself but I quite often think it's like you know you're moving along this corridor someone opens a door for you and switches on the light and suddenly you think well actually I could go into that room um, no, I'm being really abstract, <laughs> Jordan. No, no, uh, but uh, yeah, like but, I love the metaphor. It makes perfect sense. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a more practical example. I, um, in fact, I think in all my years, I used to be a careers teacher. And very often you would get students who would come to you for a little bit of careers advice. And 
you know, you, I, I've told these stories before on this uh, on this radio show. You know, you'd have these great students. You know them really well. Uh, you believe in them. You know their potential. You know what they can do. And they maybe come to you. Get this fantastic student who would come to you, and they would say, "Excuse me, sir. You know, can I have a word? You, you tell me this, sir. Do you think there's any possible, maybe perhaps any chance you could see me as an engineer?" And I'm sitting on the other side of the table and I think, what? You would be the most amazing engineer or nurse or whatever it is, you know? And I always kind of think, why can I see that in you, but you can't see that in yourself? And I always, that was a gap I always tried to close because, you know, I think you have to imagine these things first and then you dare to step into them, you know? I'm not sure if that makes sense, but... That's yeah, really fantastic example. Yeah, perfectly. So, like a couple of things come to mind there. One is uh, there's a a bunch of psychological research on hope, which like just bear with me for a second because whenever people hear the word hope, they they you know have certain like understandings of what that means. But in psychology, there's like you can think about it in terms of the three P's of hope. So the first P is some sort of possibility which is, you know, that, that engineer, like that's, that's a possible, some, somewhere different, somewhere better than where you are now. The second P is you need a, a sense that there are pathways to get to that possibility. And then the third P is you need to feel as though you have the power to walk those pathways. And if you don't have all three components, you are without hope and potentially hopeless. But you know, if, if, if a student doesn't feel like they can see the pathway there, then they go, well, no, that's, that's not something I can really, I'm not motivated or, or, or I see as being realistic. But if you say there's a pathway, well, then I, I trust you and that gives me hope now. So you're actually like a little bit like your analogy, you're opening the door and turning on the light. They can now see that pathway. And potentially if you instill in them some confidence, they go, well, yeah, actually I didn't even realize it, but I've got the power to walk that pathway too. And and, and that's the kind of interesting thing about the identity piece is like we're, we're projecting out these things that aren't true yet. It's like the fake it till you make it thing. We, we, that is kind of how identity works. You, you project this thing out into the future and then you step into it gradually, right? You, you turn potential into actual and you, and you realize. Yeah, gosh, that's, that's, that's excellent and very, very clear and very succinctly put, Jordan. Yeah. So, look, at this point, we need to take a short break now and we need to listen to the week's news. Back after this, everybody. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go, well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. 
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC reports that one in three primary schools has no male teachers. The study by the Warwick Business School says the proportion of schools without a male classroom teacher has increased in the last 12 months. The report's author, Dr Joshua Fullard, said this lack of male teachers was bad for pupils. Dr Fullard is Assistant Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School. He went on to say that there is a large body of research that shows students benefit from being educated by a teacher with certain similarities to them. The report also found that schools in special measures are less likely to have a male classroom teacher. In total, the report found that 24.3% of all state schools in England had no male classroom teachers. The report called for teachers' pay to be raised by more than 10% and for a merit-based reduction in tuition fees for university-led teacher training to be introduced. Julie McCulloch, Director of Policy for Aspel Union, said more needed to be done to attract men and women alike, and the spokesperson for the DfE said the department wanted the profession to be inclusive. North East Child Poverty Commission website reports that new figures published by the DfE confirm that more than 3 in 10 pupils across the North East are now registered for free school meals. This is an increase from January 2022. It remains the highest proportion of any part of England. The figure of 30.4% is compared with 18.8% of pupils in the South East and 19.4% in the East of England. The England-wide rate is 23.8%. All regions have seen a significant increase in the number and share of children eligible for free school meals over the last seven years. The Guardian reports children's enjoyment of writing has fallen to crisis point following research completed by the National Literacy Trust. The charity says an alarmingly low level of children and young people enjoy writing. The research was conducted across the UK. 34.6% of young people aged 8 to 18 said that they enjoy writing in their free time. Although three in four children starting school said that they enjoyed writing, this dropped to one in four by the age of 16. The Children's and Young People's Writing Report is drawn from over 70,000 responses from children to the charity's annual literacy survey. The number of children who say they enjoy writing in their free time has dropped by 12.2% in the 13 years since the survey began. Young people do report that they write to improve mental health and well-being and to support causes or issues they care about. Full details can be found on the National Literacy Trust website. Finally, Microsoft News reports that Taiwan has made the move to use Generative Artificial Intelligence, or AI, to help students learn English. Teachers in the country often report that students read and write better than they speak English, as shyness and a lack of practice can hinder oral communication. A new chatbot has been funded by Taiwan's Ministry of Education to help pupils get the practice they need. The Cooley bot allows pupils to speak person to AI, and build up conversation on preset topics. It also assesses punctuation, accuracy and fluency. Taiwan has set a goal of becoming bilingual in Chinese and English by 2030. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. 
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to ask you a question. Do you use presentation software to help you deliver your lessons? 99% of you will be saying yes at this point. Have you ever considered how many presentations the average pupil in your school sees in a day, in a week, or even in their entire school life? Considering a typical secondary education, with a bit of rough maths, over a week with five lessons a day, there's potential to see 25 presentations. That's 100 presentations in just four weeks. I've left out any additional presentations like assemblies and visitors, etc. Working on a 38-week year, that's a whopping 950 presentations a year. That's a lot of presentations. Now, let's throw in some schools have a standardised slide theme and set layouts. Now we have 950 exactly the same lesson beginnings. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but do we really know what experience a pupil gets through a typical week in school? Are they being engaged or are they being presented with the same visual stimulus day in, day out, simply causing them to fly below the radar. If you're like me, you're now thinking, how do I make my presentation stand out? Is there a presentation software out there that's better than all the rest? In my humble opinion, this is like the visualizer versus HD webcam argument. What works for some does not work for others because all subjects are not the same, which is a good thing, don't get me wrong, but please bear in mind that what works for one teacher may not work for another. A search for free presentation software returns no less than 24 apps I recognise. Some are interactive like Mentimeter, others have more dynamic transitions like Prezi. Most also have additional features and add-ons you can purchase. I know what you're saying, come on Steve, which is the best though? Well the answer is simple, but I've run out of time, so I'll have to tell you next week. In the meantime, please consider the number of presentations a typical pupil is subjected to in your school. Does this need to change, or does it work? And how do you know? Do you have a preferred presentation software and what are the features that make it stand out for you? Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. Hello and welcome back to the Thursday Lit Lit show with me, Paul Hazard, your host, and Jordan Reutas. Jordan, are you still there? I am indeed. Great. Yeah, that's excellent. Jordan, we're actually almost out of time and I kind of feel we've covered a lot of ground. We really have. But I kind of feel there's still so much more to your research and so much more to identity. I think we're going to have to, uh, we're going to, have to get you back. I was just thinking there... 
while the news was playing, I was looking forward to using the word oikiosis. Did I pronounce that properly? <laughs> I believe so, yeah. <laughs> oikiosis, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So oikiosis, that's um, about finding our way, isn't it? And finding our identity. I think we did talk about it a lot, okay. Um, but that's... Uh, it's a lovely word. It's a Greek word, of course. It comes from the Stoics. So people are often familiar with Stoicism as an ancient philosophy. And one of the principles as, um, as kind of espoused by the Stoics was this idea of oikiosis. And a, a, a modern kind of interpretation or translation of that is identification. So it's how you come to identify with people, things in the world, and, and kind of incorporate those. They, they, the word is actually a little bit like um, th your household, your inner household is kind of the language they use. So what are the things you bring into your inner household? And that is the stuff that you identify with. And once it's in your inner household, of course, you look after it, you care for it, it's front of mind, it becomes this thing that is now kind of part of who you are, and so you'll do right by it, if that's people or objects or, you know, animals, what have you. And so that process of identification, we, we can do with all sorts of things, and we've been talking about group identification as our, our main point tonight, but it extends more broadly, and anything that falls within that circle of concern, the, the kind of Stoics are saying, well, that's, that's the basis of your morality, right? Like, it has to kind of fall within the boundaries of that, and then you'll care about it and you'll you'll try to um you know improve its standing or help it along or you know whatever these kind of behaviors are in the world i wonder jordan um and we are running out of time we've really only time for a, a single question or two i wonder do some people find it easier than others to you know to, to identify with groups and so on or yeah, it's definitely true. I would even say I'm not a strong identifier, even though I, I study, you know, group identity all the time. I've actually found myself to always feel as though I'm sitting on the periphery of groups rather than at the center. And, okay. and for that reason, I mean, even in high school, I would be able to kind of float between groups quite easily. I could go and spend time with you know, the, the different groups, whereas other members that were maybe more of the, like a, what we call a prototypical member, like a, uh, um, the standard kind of person that you would expect to be a member of that group, they couldn't go and traverse those boundaries that I could. Um, so there's, but at the same time, you never feel as though you fully belong or that you're, you know, kind of really one of us. So it's, it's a blessing and a curse in a way. So yeah, people can definitely struggle, but I don't think it's all bad. Yeah. Because I think some of the things you said made me think that I might be a bit of a chameleon, you know, as, as, as someone who's able to identify, mm. you know, very quickly, very easily uh, with lots of other groups. But I kind of find I don't have to remain part of a group for very long. I can kind of, you know, move in and out very quickly. It's like a butterfly, really, I suppose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So people will have different styles, I suppose, and yours is a little bit more, um, yeah, you, you're able to kind of flit about, let's say, like a butterfly. And, 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 and then other people, let's say, maybe have like a slow burn kind of style where it's like, you know, it, it takes them a really long time to warm up to a group. And then once they do, they're fully and wholly committed. And, and you know, there's, there's probably lots of things in between as well, lots of exceptions. So everyone has their own kind of unique way of, of finding groups and becoming a part of them. And uh, yeah, I, I, I guess with each of those things, 
there, there are challenges that you will face, but also some benefit as well. So let, let's say with a slow burn, it's like, well, what's the benefit of that? Well, you're not just kind of, you're not naive and you're not kind of gullible. It, you, you have to kind of have the, the trust earned in order to go, yeah, okay, I'm actually on board with this group. Whereas if you just come in hard on sleeve, you know, you can kind of be, be influenced maybe quicker than you would or in a way that you wouldn't normally. I, I, and again, I'm just listening to you there. I'm absorbed really. And I'm just thinking about myself um, and, and examples of, of, you know, how I change identities and change very quickly. Um, I, I'm a linguist, you know, I, I speak French and Italian, and I would notice, you know, when I go to France, you know, an awful lot of changes overcome me. And the same again, but, but different changes maybe when I go to Italy. Um, I, I just find that interesting. You just try to become French or Italian. Um, yeah, my... Um, yeah. My two children used to laugh at me, used to mock me, really, uh, or wind me up because um, as I would go around and meet different people, they could see, they were observers, really, and they could see very clearly that, you know, my body language would change enormously as I met different people. My tone, my language, uh, my vocabulary, all sorts of things, you know. Now, they thought this was a great joke. But I suppose listening to you tonight, it's kind of making mm. a lot more sense to me of maybe how and why I'm like that. Yeah, and, and again, it's maybe something that potentially, again, is on a sliding scale and, and you're a little bit more adaptable, but everyone would experience those shifts and transformations across a day. Sure. You know, when, you, when you're at home with your family, there are certain things you're going to be thinking about and, and certain language you'll be using, certain behaviors in your household that are normal. And then you go to work and all of a sudden you've got to shift. You're not, you're not using the same deck of cards that you were at home. And then maybe after work, you go and play with your local sporting team or you go, go out with your friends or whatever. And again, your behavior shifts. And that's, that's maybe like a key point I want to hit home with the identity piece. It's like, again, it's structuring your psychology, what you think, how you feel, how you behave, what you say. All of these things are being guided and structured by that, that group or identity that you're a part of. Um, and yeah, just maybe notice it next next time you're going from one to the other, when you go from home to work, to, to sport, to hobby, interest group, whatever it is, and just see if you can notice the shift in, in your own behavior and your own psychology. And uh, that's, that's really, I think that's a, a really interesting kind of piece of self-awareness. Yeah. Jordan, it's fascinating stuff. And uh, unfortunately, we're really out of time, but it really just tells me that it, it's crucial that we have you back and, and examine this. And I think even ourselves, we've kind of moved off our, our, our kind of plan this evening. But, uh, but nonetheless, it's been fun, uh, fascinating. Jordan, on this program, we usually ask a question towards the end. If you had a magic wand and only one spell that you could cast, what would you do to make education uh, you know, a significantly better lot for teachers? It is an excellent question, and it's a bit of a stumper, but if I had a magic wand and I could wave it... Look, I, th I think there's something really wonderful about teaching that, you know, that it has this... something really core to our humanity in it, and that you're trying to unleash the potential or, or kind of um, allow the potential in, in um, young minds to, to develop and to flourish. Um, but I don't know if teachers always get to see that. 
like I actually think modern teaching now is very quantitative if, if I'm not mistaken. I don't like for, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but like schools and potentially even teachers now are judged on these metrics, you know, standardized testing and and other things like that. Um, and I wonder how many of them get to see like when that student goes up and they, they grow up and the thing they go out and, and do in the world, do they get to see that? You know, like I'd love to have a, a magic wand where you kind of like the, the end of the movie and they, they say like, here's where the characters are now. I'd love to give that opportunity to every teacher to, so that they can firsthand see the impact that they're having on you know, their students' lives and, and the, the course they go and take into the world and the difference that they then make. And that would come back and I think it would allow people to see like that what they do really matters and it has a material impact and you know, all that effort, all that care, it, it meant something and it's, and it's leading somewhere. Whereas if someone just gives you a graph and say, hey, look, we're, we're up year on year 2% or whatever on our, on our testing scores, like that's, I don't think that's why people get into teaching. So I'd love to give everyone that, that chance to know and to see firsthand that um, all, all of the hard work and all the trials and tribulations um, are really meaningful and they're worthwhile and they're, they're making a big difference out there in the world. That's a fascinating perceptive insight, Jordan. Um, I think you're spot on. I think it's very accurate. And I think if that could change and teachers could help to unlock the potential of, of children and see it through to conclusion, that would be, that would be fantastic. Or, or even just like a yeah. school reunion, you know, like, but rather than the kids coming back to hang out, they get to come back and tell their teacher like, hey, here's what I've made of myself. Here's, you know, you were my teacher 20 years ago and I've got a, you know, a PhD now and I'm out saving the world, changing lives, that kind of stuff. I think that would be really wonderful. I'll put it in the show notes, but there is a teacher appreciation uh, website and there are some very, very big time celebrities on that. And I think in certainly in the UK here, they have a, a writing competition and they have a celebration day coming up. I'll put all that in the, in the show notes. Okay. So Jordan, you're on to a conference very soon. Yes, heading to the European Association of Social Psychology to present some of the work that I talked about in this session. And that's in Excellent. Poland. Yeah, it's in Poland. Great. Well, look, Jordan, I hope uh, and all the listeners hope that uh, that's a massive success for you. You've been a fabulous guest and we look forward to having you again in the future. Thank you, Nye. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Catch you next time, everyone. <laughs> Good night, everybody. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.